This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And our next guest is one of those state-of-the-art academic researchers. Hello, Daniel. Hey, how are you guys? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. Good. So this is Daniel Sheehan. He's an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Kentucky. And we're going to talk about your research. But before we start that, since this is a segment we're trying to highlight, how did you decide to be a marketing professor? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, some of it was actually just the whole academic curiosity, the ability to study anything every day that just sort of I don't know, captivates you. Mm -hmm. So I I had a few jobs in industry before I went this way and always liked what I was doing, but always felt like I wanted to ask that next question. And it wasn't always important with the things I was doing at the time. It was much more project focused. Let's move from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. But actually talking to some academics in Atlanta where I went to school, I got to see that there is an opportunity out there to just keep asking these questions and hopefully answering them at the same time. So you got your bachelor's from Virginia Tech and then, as you alluded, you got your Ph.D. from Georgia Tech. So you're like one of those tech guys that are in really high demand. Why would you waste your talents in academia? <laughs> oh, I don't think I'm wasting <laughs> But, I mean, seriously, nowadays, like one of the things I was reading, people who might, maybe used to go into academics, if they have these mm. tech skills, are thinking about going into the Googles and the Facebooks. And Have you ever considered any of that? Mm. I mean, it's always, it, it's all sort of about the same thing, right? That, like, it's just trying to understand how people work and maybe use it different ways. Mm-hmm. I think I like the, the freedom that we have on this side of it, that we yes. truly can wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden be captivated by an issue and be like, I want to figure out why that happens and how we can answer that question. Mm-hmm. So hopefully instead of just helping one company, you can help a whole bunch of different constituents. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. One of our colleagues, Katie Milkman, she's a professor here, and um, she wrote down Twitter I saw this morning. I don't know if you saw it. It's like, I'm going to put in order the things that I care about as a person, as an academic. And she said the first thing was something like, I I have to be good by students. And then uh, the second thing is I want to do science to help people. Wow. Uh, It was kind of an interesting exercise. I'm putting you on the spot, Daniel, but could you uh, (laughs) you possibly? What's your Twitter priority? Curious That's, uh, if you've ever thought know. about this, because right. it sounds like you've thought a little bit. You have a lot of opportunities with the skills you have. Um, so do you know what you value? Do you think about that at all? I think I'm just driven by the curiosity. Like, I almost feel like we are, in a sense, like adventurers, mm-hmm. where you really don't know where the wind's going to blow you. And I like to feel that, you know, that next project is something that I wasn't thinking about yesterday. And that's really where you can make these connections between different things that you never thought about mm-hmm. and hopefully discover something that hasn't been shown or thought about totally. before. What I really like about what you're saying, Daniel, is that in a sense that we are entrepreneurs of ideas. Correct. Do you like that, Barbara? Yeah. That, that, the way that just rolled off yeah. my tongue there? Uh, and so you're right. It's like you, you just you can just sort of create a sort of world, a toy store for yourself, if you will, of all these things that just you're interested in and you want to explore, that you're curious about. And the other beautiful thing, which is kind of my one of the reasons I love academia, is no one controls your time, really. It's like you can explore these things whenever you want. I mean, obviously, you have to be in the classroom at certain times and do your class mm-hmm. and all that. But on the research side, you know, you can pop into Starbucks and, you know, you may have to buy something, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah, sit down. With you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, sit down with your laptop and, you know, just do some work or just, you know, go to the park and muse and think about ideas. It's a really... Uh, like almost like the the freedom around it is really empowering. Would you say that uh, is part of it? 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It is almost a blessing and a curse, though. I'm sure mm. my wife probably wishes I would stop asking her, like, hey, have you ever thought about how this works? <laughs> yeah, I bet that is true. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, who's going to make dinner while you uh, yeah, yeah. go think about all of these interesting uh, curiosities? So tell us what, what, you know, your general, we'll talk about your most recent research, but what are your general interests? Um, I'm really trying to, or I'm really generally interested in sort of this intersection between consumer psychology and and the applied world of retailing. So how do really people make decisions? I've always been motivated by this journey as opposed to the destination, so that's pretty closely related to this last paper that came out. But I always try to sort of think about, well, how do these sort of micro things change over time to maybe... I don't know, result in some big different or some macro difference in the end. And how did you get, I can understand the consumer psychology, although here you are a tech person, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> how'd you pick retailing? I mean, it really, I don't know if I picked it as much as it's just that it picked me. So like almost like what you were saying a second ago, Americus, like when you're in a Starbucks or when you're at someplace, these ideas might come to you. And for me, it was just, hey, when I'm at Target or when I'm in Kroger, or when mm-hmm. I'm in a retailer, mm-hmm. That's just my lab. So I start to think about it like that, and it it just comes a little bit more naturally than thinking about something more theoretical, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, so why don't you tell us about your latest study uh, about... How budgets invert relative spending patterns. Okay. So this latest project was really looking at how things might change over course of spending decisions. So we look at a lot of grocery shopping decisions and try to see how somebody's proclivity to spend more or less in a purchase decision. It's something we term relative spending. How that varies predictably throughout a shopping experience, whether they are a budget shopper or a non-budget shopper. Okay. And so how do you define budget shopper and non-budget shopper in in the research? In this case, most of our studies are lab studies where we explicitly manipulate it. So we give somebody a budget or we allow them to shop freely. Oh, so what Uh, you mean by budget is not necessarily that they're on a budget, but that they have a, a, a fixed amount of money to spend versus they can just spend freely. Correct. Yeah, that we tell them that they have imagined that they have this type of budget. So a lot of our lab studies went like that. Um, We also tried to sort of align people that might not be typical budget shoppers by telling them, hey, they have this budget to spend and they can get a small cash prize on top of that if they stay within their budget, Mm. just to make it somewhat consequential as some budget shoppers. You know, if you spend over your budget, that means that money has to come out of something else. And Mm -hmm. do you have any um, just, uh, that's an interesting kind of manipulation. Do you have any uh, data that shows the percentage of people that shop on budgets versus not budgets? Um, I don't have any hard data. I do know some some other research has estimated it's about a third of shoppers Hmm. shop on some sort of a budget. Now, there's a lot of variance in what we deem as that budget, but that seems to be something that's come out in the past. I remember one time there used to be this manual thing that you could click down whatever you spent and so you could t- keep a running tally. Uh, mm-hmm. I bet you could do that on your phone now with some app mm. oh, so that you actually could manage your budget if you yeah. were really cash constrained. Yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, with all the technology coming into retailing. Like, I, I'd be surprised if that's not there in some stores right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Well, let me ask you, Barbara, do you shop with a budget? What's not your budget? me. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm spending. It's a big surprise. Yeah, when I get yeah, I'm to the that. same way. I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. But I don't go grocery shopping that often. To yeah, be true. Right, right. Um, Interesting. Okay, so now you, you, so you must have had hypotheses that people on a budget are going to spend differently than people. Not. Yeah. So, but just before you jump into that, Daniel, I want to get a, a, a stronger sense of uh, the specific types of manipulation. So, in one condition, you would say 
your budget is X amount of dollars. In another condition, you would say your budget is X plus $20. Is that kind of the idea? So it's just oh, more or less money or is it? No, no, sorry. Let me rephrase it. So in one condition, I would tell people that, hey, imagine you're in a grocery store. You can buy these, pro- like you'll, you'll go through a simulated shopping experience and you have a chance to actually win the products that you're purchasing. Mm-hmm. So in some studies, it was a one in 10 chance and others, it was a little bit more of a reach. But that's what we did for non-budget shoppers. So they still hopefully made these price quality comparisons as they were going through the shopping trip. Oh, right. That would be a confound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Buying products that they would actually want to buy and not just buying like the cheapest product mm-hmm. or anything like mm-hmm. that or the highest expensive product. Mm-hmm. Um, but for budget shoppers, we would be like, hey, imagine your budget is $60. Mm-hmm. Um, pl- you would get all the products that you would buy, but it, also you receive this prize package is how we deemed it, a prize package of $100 and $60 of it would be your groceries and you would get the remainder in cash. But if you exceeded your budget, you would just get the groceries you purchased and not that extra remainder in cash. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Okay. Interesting. We're talking to Daniel Sheehan. He's an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Kentucky. And he's talking about his research, which looks at how people on a budget or not on a budget feel as they're shopping. So what were your hypotheses underlying this? So my hypothesis was really that spending evolves throughout a shopping trip in a nonlinear fashion. And then that, that fashion is different for budget versus non-budget shoppers. So really what we were trying to do is look at, or look at how people felt as they spent money. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about that traditional non-budget shopper, they go into the grocery store and they probably don't care that much about mm-hmm. what they're spending. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like Barbara. She, uh, <laughs> hey, like she doesn't have that app. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really what we started to realize was that's how you start. But maybe after you start to buy five mm. products or a few products, mm. price becomes a little bit more important. It wasn't something you thought about at first, but then all of a sudden you might find yourself leaning towards a store brand or being a little bit mm. more averse to spending too much as that card is filling up. Yeah, mm. that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. But then later in the shopping trip, that actually eases off. So that, that pain of pain is what we call that, that negative reaction you have to spending money. It grows at the beginning. But then as you get later on in the shopping trip, you realize that buying that extra bottle of Coca-Cola or splurging on a fancier type of frozen pizza, it's not that big of a difference mm. to your actual cart spending. So you start to free up your spending a little bit. And that's for the person not on a budget. Yeah, that's for the person not on a budget. And what was really interesting is we found that for people on budgets, you have that exact opposite pattern Hmm. where they start a grocery trip so worried about overspending. They buy the cheapest things they can at first because they're really hyper concerned about their budget. But as they purchase a few products, they start to realize that, wait, I set the right budget. I have the money for the products Hmm. I wanted to get. So they feel a little bit of wealth, a little bit of freedom to go and buy a more expensive product. And so they actually split a little bit more in the middle of the shopping trip where non-budget shoppers would splurge at the beginning mm-hmm. or end. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the shopping trip, as they're approaching their budget, they're like, whoa there, I got to slow down and make sure I don't exceed my budget. And they spend less again. Well, Daniel, it's really nice for you to join us tonight. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. It was great to be here. And we hope that you'll join us again sometime when you finish the next project on, this, uh, on these retailing journeys and customer journeys. Definitely. Okay. So thank you. If you're interested in keeping up with what's happening with Dan, head to gatton.uky.edu. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.